Well, this is it. This is the final lesson in our 23-week series on the Gospel of John. We're in the middle of Holy Week. Uh, we just celebrated Palm Sunday, and this coming Sunday will be Easter Sunday. And so we're ending at just the right time. And, and I'm hoping that this last lesson will, more than anything else, prepare you for the celebration of Easter this year. We're going to be in chapters 20 and 21, so we're going to cram a lot into this lesson. And we're not going to read through it like we normally do or what we've done the last few weeks because there's a lot of material. But probably by now you, you've come to the realization that my brain doesn't function like most people's brains. Um, I tend to look at passages a little bit differently, and, and this week is going to be no different. This is material that's familiar to you. You're, you know what's going to happen. You know how the story ends. You've seen the movie. you read the book. And so what I want to do is I want to look at these last two chapters from a different perspective. And, and I want us to see something that maybe we've never seen before and something that we don't necessarily associate with Easter Sunday and the resurrection. And so you'll understand where I'm going as soon as we get into the lesson, but let's just jump into it right now. We're in that last phase of the story, the story of Jesus' life, and, and I've titled this lesson, The Son Appears. We know it's about the resurrection. Jesus has been crucified, Jesus has been buried, and we know the next phase of the journey is His resurrection, and that's what these two chapters cover. Now, John, as we've seen in the last uh, few lessons, he is very brief in his descriptions. And his rendition of this last part of Jesus' life is very brief compared to the other Gospels. He, he doesn't tell us everything. He's the king of brevity, as we said last week. And, and yet he tells the story from his perspective, having been the only one of the gospel writers who was there and, and I witnessed many of, the, many of these things. So we need to keep that in mind as we go through this. So Jesus is resurrected and he's going to begin to appear to the disciples. And so that's going to be important. And what we know is that later on, Paul will write about these very events and he will give even more details than John does in his description. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, here's what he says about Christ's resurrection. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him, Paul says. We know the story of his exposure to the risen Christ as he was headed to Damascus and had an encounter with Jesus. But he goes on and he says, If Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith, the Corinthian believers, your faith is useless. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then everything we've been telling you, everything we've been preaching has been totally useless and your faith is useless. He goes on and says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. That's kind of the bombshell. It's not only that your faith is useless, but, but your salvation is non-existent. If he's not risen from the dead, if that didn't take place, 
then we have no hope. There is no salvation to speak of. But then he adds, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Now this should remind us of a verse that we looked at and I quoted multiple times last week. And it's from the lips of Jesus himself when he said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. And so here we have Paul writing sometime later, after Jesus resurrects, ascends on high, the Holy Spirit comes, he meets him on the road to Damascus, he's converted, and now he's writing to the Corinthian believers and he's saying virtually the same thing that Jesus said back in John chapter 12. He's saying Christ has been raised from the dead and he is the first fruits of many, many who will come. And so that's really what we, what we want to look at as we look at chapters 19 and 20. What's interesting about these two chapters is the way John describes these events. And he's going to give us a look at a few of these kernels, uh, the fruit of Jesus' resurrection. But they won't necessarily appreciate it initially. And so we're going to look at four different eyewitnesses, people who saw the resurrected Christ. And he's going to name them by name. Now, there were others, as we saw Paul say, there were 500 who saw Jesus at one time. We know that all the apostles saw Jesus at one time or another. Some of them saw him three times. And so why does he only give us four who are named? We know one of them is Mary Magdalene, and we'll, we're going to talk about her. We know another one is Simon Peter. One of them is Thomas. And the fourth one is Nathaniel. Now, John is also in this list, but he doesn't name himself as is true to the way he's treated himself throughout this gospel account. He never names his name. He always refers to himself in the third person. So these are the only four who are named and, and who he kind of pulls out and he distinguishes by their experience. And we're going to start with Mary. We're only going to look at two of them. And because I, I don't have enough time to kind of unpack them all, but these two are extremely significant and they're going to help make the point I hope to make. So the first one's Mary Magdalene. Well, who's Mary Magdalene? There's a lot of Marys in the Bible. Well, we know from Luke's gospel account that Mary Magdalene was a woman who was possessed of seven demons and Jesus cast them out. So this is a formerly demon-possessed woman and Jesus heals her. He cast out the demons, which was a sign of his authority over Satan. He's, he's got more power than the enemy of this world, than the prince of this world. And so this woman was a beneficiary. So Mary Magdalene, it says that on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, okay, you remember Friday is his death and burial. Saturday is the Sabbath, the day of rest, and now we're talking about Sunday. The first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. It's probably before the sun has come up because it tells us it's still dark. So it's probably before 6 o'clock in the morning and something happens. She shows up on Sunday. Now what's significant is, is that there's a day in between his death and burial and this day, and that's the Sabbath. Mary's return to the tomb on the Sabbath or after the Sabbath. So we've got that day in between, the day of rest that God had ordained for the people of God. 
And so the Sabbath has ended and we know that she had showed up along with some other women on Friday in the hopes of anointing the body of Jesus before it was placed in the tomb. But they arrived too late. How do we know that? Look at Luke chapter 23. It was the day of preparation, Friday, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. In other words, they're watching Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea prepare the body and get ready to place it in the tomb. They were too late, so they returned and repaired spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. They couldn't do what they planned to do on Friday, so they had to wait until Sunday. That's where we are in this story. So all during the Sabbath, they rested. And now it's time to anoint the body of Jesus. So they get up. Now, the last page of your notes gives you an outline of all the different events as they happen. The timeline of events, because the four gospel writers don't all track with one another in terms of the chronology. They leave some things out, others add things that the others don't, don't include. And so that's meant to give you an idea of all the different sequences. Otherwise, people say, well, this contradicts Luke and Luke contradicts Matthew. They don't contradict one another. They're all including different parts of the sequence of events. So here we have Mary coming back to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. In other words, she's got work to do. She had prepared the, the ointment and spices, and now she's coming after the Sabbath is over. She couldn't work on the Sabbath, so now she's coming to work on Sunday. And she's in for a shock, a major shock. And we know what that shock is. She gets there, and it says the stone had been taken away from the tomb. That is not what she expected. Okay, so this is a major bombshell for her. She, she arrives. She's still in mourning. She, she's still saddened by all that happened on Friday. And she shows up in the the tomb has the stone rolled away. And so what does she do? She runs and she tells two of the disciples, Simon Peter and John. And she listen to what she tells them. And she does this twice. She uses the same phrasing two different times. She says, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. In other words, his body is gone. And we don't know where they have laid him. Now, everything about that statement tells us that Mary Magdalene still thought him to be dead. So she walks up, the stone has been rolled away, and the first thought in her mind is not, he's risen. It's, where's the body? And that's why she runs. She, she wants to know where the body has been taken. And so she runs to these men. He's dead, but the problem is worse than ever. The body's missing. So not only is Jesus her long-awaited Messiah, her hoped-for Messiah, her mentor, her friend, the man who healed her of seven demons. Not only is he dead, his body's gone. And that's the reason she runs to Peter and John. She's, she's looking for help. I don't know exactly what she expected them to do, but I assume part of it is that she thinks they can help her search for the body. And she's probably thinking it can't have gone far. But see, she's not expecting a risen Lord. So they run to the tomb and Mary lags behind the two disciples. And we'll talk about that in just a second. She gets there after them. They look in, they leave. She shows up 
and she's standing outside the tomb weeping. This gives you an idea of her demeanor. Again, no expectation of, expectation of a risen Lord. She's weeping. She's sad. And as she weeps, she stooped and she looked into the tomb. And, and once again, listen to what she says. She sees two angels. Now that should have triggered something in, in Mary, but it doesn't. They say, woman, why are you weeping? And what's her response? Here she goes again. They have taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. Somebody's taken the body and I don't know where they put it. So here are the, here's these two angels, one at either end of the place where his body was lying. And all she can say is his body's gone and I don't know where it is. And having said this, and this is fascinating, she turns around and she sees Jesus standing there, except she doesn't recognize him. Now, we don't know why this is. Could it be that she's so busy weeping and her uh, eyes are filled with tears and they're blurry? Or is it because Jesus disguised himself in some way, prevented her from seeing who he was? We don't know. But all we know is that she did not know that it was Jesus. So her Messiah is standing right in front of her, but she doesn't recognize him. And then Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Once again, what are, you, what are you crying for? What's the purpose behind your weeping? And then he says, whom are you seeking? Now, she mistakes him for the gardener. Again, I don't know why. We're not told by John why she sees him as the gardener, except that he's in that garden because that's where the tomb was. The body is gone and she just assumes he works there. And so once again, she says, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Now, I don't have any clue how Mary thought she would do this. If the man had said, I know where the body is, how she was going to carry the body of Jesus, I don't know. But it once again tells us she had no expectations that he was risen. She's asking this gardener, this stranger, hey, if you've taken the body, just tell me where it is and I'll take care of it. None of this makes sense, right? But it shows her despair. It shows that she isn't expecting anything but a dead body, a dead Messiah. And so Jesus says, whom are you seeking? I, I love the subtlety of Jesus. He's standing there in front of her. He's the risen Lord. And he asks her, who are you seeking? See, Mary had woken up that Sunday and she had one thing in her brain. One thing she wanted to accomplish, she was anointing the body of Jesus. That's why she woke up that morning. She still had the supplies to do it. That's the reason she walked to the tomb. She was going to anoint a dead body. See, when she saw the empty tomb, it didn't change any of her expectations. It didn't light a fire within her. She didn't suddenly say, maybe he's risen. He said he would rise from the dead. Maybe this is it. No, she was still looking for a body. See, what's interesting and what I need you to understand as you look through this story is that Jesus Christ is risen. We know that. And yet Mary is crestfallen. So you've got a resurrected Lord and a very sad woman because she doesn't yet understand what's going on. She hasn't yet seen him and recognized him as who he really is, the resurrected Messiah. So Jesus says her name. He says, Mary. And Mary turns and suddenly she recognizes him. It's like the veil has been lifted from her eyes. And she says, Rabboni, which is teacher. She sees him. She recognizes him. And then she evidently drops to her knees and she clings to him. Like, I'm never going to let you go again. 
She's so glad to see him. And yet Jesus says, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. Now, here's something you may have never noticed in this passage. How Mary reaches out and she grabs a hold of Jesus. She's so ecstatic to see him risen and alive. And so she's clutching onto him. And yet he says, don't cling to me. And I think what he's really saying is, don't try to keep me here because I'm not yet ascended. I have something else I need to do. And this is so important to understanding the resurrection. And it's often overlooked by us. Mary wants to hold on to Jesus. She wants things back to the way they were before, before his death and his burial. She wants Jesus to stay with her. And yet he says, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers, go to the disciples and tell them that I'm going to, I'm going to see them. I've got a message for you to give them. He says, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father. In other words, I'm returning back to where I came from and to your father, and to my God and your God. Go tell the disciples that. That's the message. So Mary Magdalene went and she announced this message. Jesus said, I'm ascending. Don't cling to me. I've not yet ascended. Go tell the disciples, I am ascending. See, this is a message he wants them to hear. And it's a message that needs to be understood as we go through these last two chapters. He's not yet ascended, but I am ascending. That's the next step in the process. He's risen, but he's still got to ascend. See, his resurrection is not the end of the story. Now, rightfully so, we celebrate his resurrection on Easter Sunday. We should. It's a wonderful event, but there's more to the story. And again, this is something we tend to overlook and that we don't appreciate. And the disciples didn't yet fully appreciate it. Mary Magdalene didn't fully appreciate it. He says, I'm ascending. There's another step in the process. Jesus had to die. Jesus had to be buried. Jesus had to be risen from the dead. He had to be raised up by the power of the Holy Spirit and according to the will of God the Father. But he's also going to have to ascend. He had told them this all the way back in chapter 16. He said, now I am going away to the one who sent me. And it's best that I go away because if I don't, the advocate, the helper, the Holy Spirit won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. See, there's, there's an exchange that needs to take place for the full benefit of the resurrection to be felt by these men and the women. Jesus Christ had to ascend so that the Holy Spirit would come. That's important. It's not just important, it's essential. It's part of the whole redemptive plan of God. And so what does Mary do? She runs and she goes and finds the disciples and she says, I have seen the Lord. She's ecstatic. She can't keep it in. I've seen Jesus. And so you see her go from abject sorrow to rejoicing. She, she can't contain it. Her whole perspective has radically changed by seeing Jesus. But see, the message she has to deliver is, is so important. And she went from weeping outside the tomb to what? Declaring, announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord. I went to anoint a dead body, but now I've seen a risen, living, breathing Messiah. But here's the thing. 
She's extremely energized. She probably ran from the garden all the way to where the disciples were. She's energized, but she still is not yet empowered. And there's a huge difference. There's a huge difference in Mary's life, and there's a huge difference between those two things in our lives. To be energized by Easter Sunday and the resurrection and all that it means, and yet we can live not empowered. And I hope that makes sense as we move along. So she makes this announcement. Everything about her had changed. She's excited. She's ecstatic. She went from despairing to declaring, I have seen the Lord. He's risen. He's, he's alive. What was once a sad story is now a happy story. She experienced joy, the joy of the resurrection. In other words, he's alive. He's been resurrected. But she doesn't yet experience the power of the res resurrection. She sees it, right? She sees it in the risen Lord. That's obviously the power of God that he was dead. And now he's alive. But she doesn't yet have it within herself. And that's going to be the reoccurring theme of John's gospel in these last two chapters. She, she's not yet been changed from within. There's something missing. So let's take a look at Peter. What happened to Peter? When Peter got the news from Mary, he ran to the tomb along with John. Now, the other gospel writers seem to indicate that John outran Peter. And, and it says, Simon Peter came following him, John. So he gets, he evidently was a smoker and, and didn't have the lung capacity. And so John outruns him. Peter gets there and he went into the tomb. He literally went into the tomb to see things for himself. And it says, he saw the linen cloths lying there. He saw the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head. And it's not lying together with the linen cloth. So he sees things arranged in a pretty strange way. They didn't, whoever took the body didn't just take the body fully wrapped. They unwrapped it and then took it, which is bizarre. It's a strange thing. So this is what he sees. What happens? It says, after he and John saw this scene, they, they went home. They went home. Now, why did Mary go get them? I think Mary went to get them so that she, they would help her search for the body. And yet, as soon as they look in, they see that the tomb is empty. Now, we're, we're skipping over it, but John says he looked in and believed. I don't think Peter looked in and believed. I think Peter looked in, despaired, but both men went home. See, they didn't understand. John clearly states that neither one of them fully understood what was going on here. They don't grasp the significance of what they're seeing. Even John, when he says he believed, I don't think he fully understood all that he was seeing. I think he probably thought Jesus was alive, but he, he didn't fully understand or grasp the full significance of it all. The tomb is empty. The body is gone, but they're still trying to connect all the dots. They're still trying to understand what could have happened. Where could he be? I think Peter's thinking like Mary, who could have taken him? Why would they have taken him? And John is probably starting to remember some of the things Jesus said about going to Jerusalem and dying at the hands of, of the Jews and, 
being crucified and being buried, but rising again on the third day. And he's beginning to try to process it all, but he doesn't fully get it. But see, Peter, I don't think got any of it because he doesn't yet have the ability. The truth is neither did John. Because again, they're missing something. Jesus told his disciples, the helper, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He told them that when the Holy Spirit comes, when I ascend and the Holy Spirit descends and comes upon you, you will now know, you'll understand, you'll recall everything that I've told you and it will begin to make sense. But at this moment, they don't have the Holy Spirit. He's not yet come because Jesus has not yet ascended. And so it doesn't make sense to them. So they go home. They go back to where they were. The empty tomb didn't improve Peter's outlook. He didn't get excited. He didn't run to go tell anybody. He just went home. And he most certainly didn't start a search for the body. He didn't know what to do. So he just goes home. And there's a sense of defeatism in that statement that they just went home. But something would happen that evening. We know from verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And that's, that's an important couple of statements. The doors are locked and they're fearful. Why? Well, because the Jews, the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, Annas, and their compatriots had helped to put Jesus to death. And they're the disciples of Jesus. So they're behind closed doors, locked doors, and they're fearful. Maybe we're next. So Jesus appears to them. He came and stood amongst them and he says, peace be with you. He, he, he says, shalom, peace, don't worry. Rest in your hearts because I'm here. It says he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad. Yeah, they're, they're again ecstatic, just like Mary when she finally recognized Jesus, she was ecstatic. These men are ecstatic. There's Jesus. He's alive. He shows them the scars in his hands and his feet. And they recognize that he has indeed been resurrected from the dead. He's alive. And they are glad, John says. Every one of them. They're glad. See, they've now got a chance to see the resurrected Lord with their own eyes. They're gathered behind that locked door. Jesus appears. They see him and they're ecstatic. They're overjoyed by what they see. But what we've got to understand is that there's more to this than they comprehend. See, they're overjoyed because of a reunion. They've been reunited with Jesus and they're having this wonderful reunion. What did Mary Magdalene do? She clung to Jesus. What do these guys do? They're happy. They're ecstatic. They're probably clapping their hands. They're hugging one another. They're hugging Jesus. It's a happy reunion. The family is back together. And yet Jesus is about to commission them for a mission. See, they've got work to do. They have something they are supposed to do. And yet they're not quite ready for it. So Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You have a mission. God sent me in a mission. Now I'm going to send you on a mission. And then it says something interesting. It says, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So here he is commissioning them. 
They've been reunited with Jesus, but they're not yet united to Jesus. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Jesus had made it pretty clear to them that when the Holy Spirit comes, something significant was going to happen. He said, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper. Who? The Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, the advocate. And you know Him for He dwells with you, but He will be in you. There's going to be a change in your relationship with the Holy Spirit. He's been with us all along, guiding Jesus, empowering Jesus for all the miracles that He did, guiding the disciples. But now when Jesus ascends and the Holy Spirit descends, they will now have that power within them. But not only will they have the Holy Spirit, they're going to have God the Father and God the Son. We've talked about this before. The, the Holy Trinity was going to come to dwell within each of those men, Mary and the other women. Jesus told them, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. In that day, in that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. That day referring to the day when the Holy Spirit comes, when they receive the power from on high that Jesus had promised. They will then know that they are in full possession of not just the Holy Spirit, but God the Father and God the Son. He also told them, we the Trinity will come and make our home with him, with you, with Peter, with Mary, with John. All of the disciples will get this wonderful experience, but it's not yet happened. It's not yet taken place. See, he's, he breathed on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. There's something that they need to have happen. Now, there's a lot of debate about exactly what took place in this context when he breathed on them and when he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to get into that today. Suffice it to say that he was breathing into them new life, new hope, a new commitment. Things were about to radically change. And it reminds me of the Genesis account of the creation, the original creation. It says that the Lord God formed man from dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. He literally breathed into man and he took on life. What Jesus is doing, either symbolically or literally, is he's breathing into them the new resurrection life that will be theirs through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. He's preparing them for what's to come. He's bestowing on them resurrection life. See, He's resurrected. He's alive. He's well. Everything's great. But they still lack resurrection power. And it's going to jump out all throughout this passage because they don't yet have the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's coming. But at this moment, as He stands before them and he's, as He speaks these words, He's trying to prepare them that you have a mission and you will be empowered for that mission with resurrection power. Remember what, what he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is Luke's account of Jesus right before he descends. It's the last thing he says to his disciples. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Something's going to happen. When I ascend, the Holy Spirit will descend. And that'll be a game changer. See, the resurrection was not the end. It was just the beginning. The beginning of resurrection life. 
and the beginning of resurrection power. And yet just a week later after this, we find these guys in hiding again. Look what it says in verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. They're behind closed doors again. And Thomas was with them. He wasn't in the first, time, first meeting with Jesus. And it says, although the doors were locked, Jesus came in. They've got the doors locked again. They're still fearful, even though they've seen the resurrected Lord, even though he has breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, they're still hiding. So Jesus comes. He appears. And once again, he says, peace be unto you. And it says that he did other signs. He revealed himself over and over again to these men. We know at least on three different occasions he appeared before the disciples. And then it tells us that on one of those occasions, he appeared to them sometime later at the Sea of Galilee. And, and this is an interesting story to me because the disciples, at least seven of the disciples, have gone to the Sea of Galilee and they're fishing. They've gone there and were given a list of who their names were. Simon is among them, Nathaniel's among them, Thomas is among them, and, and Simon Peter, being kind of the ringleader, basically turns to the other guys and said, I'm going fishing. I don't know about you guys, but I'm going fishing. Now he's seen the resurrected Lord at least twice. He's been commissioned by the resurrected Lord, and now he's here in Galilee. He's gone back to his home turf, and he's gone back to what he does best, or at least he thought he did best. He's fishing. And so what happens? The rest of the guys go, well, we'll go with you. What else have we got to do? See, Jesus isn't with them. And in his, in his absence, they've gone back to what they know. And what's interesting about the men that are here, Peter, we know, was the denier of Jesus. He denied him three times. Thomas was the doubter. He's the one who says, can anything good come out of Nazareth when it was first announced to him that Jesus was the Messiah? And then we know that Nathaniel was the disparager. He, 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 well, Thomas was the doubter in the sense that he, he doubted Jesus. Thomas, or Nathaniel is a disparager. He's the one who said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then we've got James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and they were the demanders. They're the two who came to Jesus and said, when you set up your kingdom, can we sit on your right and your left? And they even got their mother involved. So these are four of the seven who are there, along with Peter and the others. It's, it's, it's a strange mixture of men. And they've just gone back to fishing. But guess what? They didn't catch anything. They have no luck. At least half of these guys are fishermen, and they can't catch any fish. They fished all night. They can't catch anything. See, Peter has seen the resur resurrected Lord but it's not changed anything in his life. He's fishing again. And even that he doesn't do very well. He's unsuccessful. They caught nothing. He's just gone back to what he knows best, and he's not even very good at that. See, Jesus, when he first called these men, said, I will make you fishers of men. But right now, they're fishing, and they're fishing for the wrong thing. And they can't even catch fish, let alone men. Why? Because they still lack something. They don't have the Holy Spirit. And so the, a stranger appears on the shore and calls out to them. And he gives them this weird piece of advice. He tells them to cast their net on the other side of the boat. And he says, if you do, you will find some fish. You'll be successful. 
Now, again, half these guys are fishermen, and this must have sounded odd, but they listened and they cast their nets and they couldn't haul in the nets because they were so full of fish. And John's the one who called out, it's the Lord. He recognized them immediately. immediately. And so what does Peter do? Peter puts on his outer garment and he jumps out of the boat and he swims to shore. And they all make their way. He's swimming. The disciples are trying to drag this full net of fish and row back to shore. They see Jesus once again. They recognize him for who he is. But there's something interesting in this story because why did Peter react so vehemently? Why did he jump out of the boat as soon as he recognized that it was Jesus? He's seen him two times before at least. And yet now he is suddenly excited. He jumps out of the boat. He begins swimming to shore. What had changed? What made the difference in his reaction? There's only one thing that it can be, and it's the miracle. What miracle? The fish. See, what's happening is, is that this is the first miracle we have described post-resurrection that Jesus performs. He takes that empty net and he fills it with so many fish that they couldn't haul it in. And that miracle must have reminded Peter of all the things that he had seen. See, it says it, it was so full that they couldn't haul it in because of the great quantity of fish in it. And suddenly, Peter starts putting all the pieces together. And this is the Jesus he was used to, the miracle-working Jesus, the, the, the Jesus who had power over the elements, the, the Jesus who had calmed the sea, the Jesus who had fed more than 10,000 people with a few loaves and fishes. Suddenly he recognizes, this is Jesus. He's back. This is what we've been waiting for. And here's what I think is happening. His hopes are being restored. But they're wrongly placed. See, he thinks Jesus has come to revive the kingdom. This is it. It's about to begin. And we know in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, right before Jesus ascends on high, here's a question that the disciples asked him. And this, this is very revealing. They were with Jesus and they kept asking him. They persistently asked him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He's resurrected. He's appeared before them. He's told them, told them I'm ascending to the Father. And yet they keep asking him the same question. Is now the time you're going to restore our kingdom? See, Peter has gone right back to his original assessment of who the Messiah was and what his kingdom would be. Is now the time? You've, you've done a miracle. You, you, you still have power. This is great. Now's the time. This must be it. You're going to restore our kingdom. He's still looking for an earthly kingdom. He doesn't yet get it. He's interested in Jesus' power. In other words, he wants to put that power to work. And probably in his brain, he's thinking to get rid of the Roman authorities and maybe pay back the Jewish authorities for what they did to Jesus. But he's missed the point. See, what's missing in him is the presence of that power. He wants to use Jesus' power, but Jesus wants to transfer that power 
into them in the form of the Holy Spirit. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus exposes this man's total inadequacy. Now, you're probably familiar with this exchange, but immediately after the, they get to shore, Peter swimming, the other men rowing, Jesus has breakfast prepared and they eat. And then he has a conversation with Simon Peter and three different times he asks him, do you love me more than these? And I think he's referring to those other disciples. Do you love me more than these disciples? And Peter says, yes, Lord. He asks him a second time, Simon, do you love me? And I think what Jesus is doing is changing the emphasis. Do you love me more than these? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. And then he asks him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you truly love me? See, he's asked him three times and it's, it's in direct reference to the three denials he made in Caiaphas' garden, his courtyard, the night that Jesus was betrayed. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And three times Peter says, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And he's grieved by this series of questions because it reminds him of his three denials. It's painful. It's hurtful. And on the third time he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus three different times has said in some form or fashion, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, take care of my sheep. You have a job to do. I'm leaving. The sheep remain and you're going to need to take care of them. Feed my sheep. But see, this guy is not equipped for the job. He doesn't have what it takes yet. And, and Jesus is even going to infer the death by which Simon will die, Simon Peter. But then he says something interesting. He says, follow me. The original command that he gave them when he called them, he repeats. But see, it's impossible. It's one thing to follow a rabbi. It's another thing to follow the resurrected Lord, and especially in the state they were in without the indwelling Holy Spirit. See, this is an impossible command. Follow me, he says. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, if anyone wants, wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. He's telling Peter, give up your preconceived ideas of the Messiah, the kingdom, your role in it and follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. See, the resurrected life requires resurrection power. And at this moment, Peter doesn't have it. And here's what I need you to understand as we get ready to celebrate this Sunday, the resurrection. The empty tomb means nothing. Don't miss this. The empty tomb means nothing if we live lives that are devoid of the Spirit's power. And the sad reality is many of us, many Christians all over the world will celebrate this Sunday the resurrection of the Lord, but they live without resurrection power 365 days out of the year. And that is not why Jesus resurrected. He resurrected so that we might have new life. He resurrected so that we might have eternal life, abundant life, that we might have resurrected life. And it comes in the form of the indwelling Spirit's power. See, in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, Paul writes this, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. 
The very same power that raised Jesus from death to life lives in you and I if we are followers and believers in Jesus Christ. And just as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. We should be living Spirit-empowered, resurrected-powered lives. And we'll celebrate this Easter and then we'll live as if we have no power whatsoever. See, Jesus died so that we might live. That's great. That's the reason we celebrate Easter. But He ascended so that the Spirit might descend. It's interesting that He said, Mary, don't hug me. Don't hang on to me because I got, got to ascend. I, I think in a way He's telling Peter, Peter, don't get all excited about miracles. The greatest miracle is that I'm going to leave and the Spirit will descend. And that will be the greatest miracle. That's what you need. You need the indwelling power of the Spirit of God. The tomb is empty so that we might be Spirit-filled. Let me say that again. The tomb is empty so that you and I might be Spirit-filled, Spirit-controlled, Spirit-led. And i got to ask you, are you? Are you living in the power that Jesus Christ died to bring when He ascended on high and sent the Holy Spirit to come to live in you and me, is that power manifesting itself through us? See, the problem is if you don't submit to that power, if you don't allow that power to direct your lives, it's as if you're saying the resurrection makes no difference. His death, His burial, and His resurrection have accomplished nothing. But you and I have dwelling within us the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And between now and Sunday, here's three things I want you to dwell on, think about, meditate on. The first is this, why is it hypocritical to make much of the empty tomb while living a life that's devoid of the Spirit's power? Now this one hurts, this one digs deep, guys, and it digs deep into my heart because Year after year, I have celebrated the empty tomb on Easter Sunday, but then 364 other days of the year, I've tended to live devoid of the Spirit's power, not fully submitted to, not allowing the power given to me to live through me, and I've lived according to the flesh. See, it's hypocritical to celebrate on one day, but not live in the power that's been made available through the resurrection the other days of the year. Secondly, Mary and Peter were glad to have Jesus back. Mary clung to Him. Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to Him. But what would have happened had He just stayed? Think about it. What if Jesus had said, hey, this is a great reunion. I'm so glad to be back together with you. And He just decided, I'm not going back to my Father's side. Well, the Holy Spirit never would have come. And if the Spirit doesn't come, we have no resurrection life or power within us. See, it's all part of the package. And it's so important for us to recognize that. Finally, every year at Christ Chapel, for as long as I've been here, and I've been here for over 40 years, every year we do something, and we'll do it this Sunday, just like we always have done. We will say, or the pastor, Cody, will get up and say, He is risen, and we will respond, He is risen indeed. Wonderful statement. Wonderful tradition. 
But what if this year we added something to that? He is risen. He is risen indeed. But what if we were able to say and mean it with all of our heart, and I am filled? He is risen. I am filled. And rejoice in that and then live like it. Well, this wraps up our series. We've been at it for 23 weeks, over two semesters. And I've had a blast studying the book of John with you. And I hope you've gotten as much out of it as I have. But I want to close in prayer and I want to pray that God would prepare your hearts for this Easter and that you would be able to say and rejoice, I am filled. Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for their hearts. Thank you for the, their desire to study your word and to grow in their knowledge of who you are and all that you've done. And most specifically, thank you for allowing us to study and learn more about Jesus Christ, the Son of God and our Savior. So, Father, would you help me? Would you help every man who's watching this video, listening to this talk, that they would, this Easter Sunday, fully recognize that, yes, you are risen, you are risen indeed. And because of that, we are filled. Filled with the same power that raised you from the dead, Jesus. And may we live like it. May we rejoice in it. And may it change us and all those around us in the days, the weeks, and the months ahead. We love you. We pray, praise you for all that you've done and all that you're going to do. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior, and our coming King. Amen. You guys have a great week, and we'll see you in May with a new series on the book of Jonah.